Hello everyone, my name is Alan Mishra. I'm an orthopedic surgeon and the founder of VitalityExplorers.com. I want to thank uh, the organizers of the 27th annual Young Surgeons Meeting and the Cambridge Trauma and Orthopedic Club for the opportunity to speak today. It is an honor. I'm really excited. And I want to start today with a question. Has anyone ever taught you how to be vital? So if you're online, you can put a yes or a no in the chat. If you're in person here, you can raise your hand. And that question is something that I want to dive into via three stories. One is about a knee surgery. The second is having drinks in Mumbai, India. And the third is about Four Mile Beach, which is a beach in northern Australia near the Great Barrier Reef. Now... My overall goal with the discussion today is to energize all of the participants. So that's our focus. We're going to do that via three stories. And the goal is also to use those stories to learn three lessons, three vital lessons. The first lesson is how to think with time in mind. The second is to cultivate closeness. And the third is to pinpoint your purpose or pinpoint your peak purpose. So let's start right with that first story. And since we're orthopedic surgeons, we're talking about surgery and there's some young surgeons in the audience here. I think it's important to discuss uh, not only your successes, but also your challenging cases. And this was a challenging case I had oh, more than 10 years ago now. And it was a 35 year old who was skiing and he injured his knee and he had difficulty with straightening his knee. He felt like something was catching or locking. On examination, he had minus 10 degrees of extension, so he had a, uh, a lag or he had a block to full extension. He only had 90 degrees of flexion. Uh, plain x-rays were negative, but an MRI showed an osteochondral lesion with a loose piece. Now, he'd also previously, two years ago, prior to this episode, had had a successful osteochondral uh, autograft transfer surgery on the opposite knee. So it was not unusual to think that maybe he knocked off an osteochondral fragment uh, while he was skiing. So he was taken to the operating room five days after presenting, after consent was obtained to do a similar type of procedure that he had two years ago successfully on his opposite knee. The surgery went just fine. There's um, less than 60 minutes of tourniquet time. Uh, he had a transfer from the sulcus terminalis on the lateral aspect of his knee to the medial aspect of the medial femoral condyle where the defect was a small amount of microfracture around the osteochondral uh, allograft was done as well in a similar fashion that had been done to his opposite side. And he was placed in a, uh, a, a splint in full extension. He was also given a cooling unit and instructions to follow up in five to seven days uh, and certainly earlier if there's any questions. So he came back four or five days later to the office and he had a fair amount of pain and swelling. And he had, over the weekend, he had taken off his dressing and he had applied the cooling unit, which had sort of these flaps uh, that was attached to an electronic cooling unit. And one of the flaps was touching his bare skin on the medial aspect of his calf. And they had a small patch of erythema around that area. Um, just, you know, three or four out of 10 pain, not severe pain, moderate swelling. He was uh, sent for an ultrasound, which was negative for any evidence of DVT. He was told to not use the cooling unit anymore, to go home and just elevate his leg and, and follow up in one to two days for reevaluation. 
Four hours later, he returned to the clinic in 10 out of 10 pain, significantly more swelling in his leg, and uh, also had pain with passive stretch and significant pain with any palpation in his calf compartments. Now, they were not rock hard in the office, but he was sent for another ultrasound, which was again negative for DVT. He also had an arterial ultrasound done at that time, which was, uh, showed triphasic flow to his foot. But because of his significant slash severe pain and his pain with passive stretch, there was a thought that he had compartment syndrome in his leg. Compartment syndrome or compartment pressures were then measured. They were in the 50s in multiple compartments and he was taken emergently for a four compartment fasciotomy. And what you can see here on the slides are the pictures of the anterior and lateral compartments where the muscle here is uh, herniating through the fascia uh, that has been opened but, uh, but looks quite robust. On the superficial and deep posterior compartments, however, the muscle does not look as good. Now the electrocautery was used to determine if there's any viability. This is a very difficult decision to not do a extensive debridement at that time. Um, and what was done was he was uh, left wide open uh, in the surgery and brought back uh, the next day. And a small amount of the, the deep posterior compartment muscle was then determined to be not viable and was removed. His wounds were then left open for three weeks. There was a determination of whether or not they could be skin grafted or closed primarily. And here, here's the interesting part. He was brought back three weeks after daily dressing changes and his wounds were closed primarily. And what, the, the very, very good news is that he did well uh, and he was able to return to elite level activities, including completing an Ironman triathlon uh, about 18 months after the surgery. Now, what I learned from this lesson and what we found and, and, and published this in the American Journal of Sports Medicine is compartment syndrome arising from an electronic cooling pad is that there was probably a reperfusion injury that resulted in significant slash severe swelling and compartment syndrome. But what I also learned is that every single second counts. So he was taken to the operating room about 7 p.m. on a Monday night, which is a very difficult time to try and find time. Um, I was very fortunate to have an anesthesiologist that brought him to the operating theater and we were able to open up his compartments, took him back multiple times to make sure everything was okay. Excellent plastic surgery consultants to help me uh, determine when to close the wounds. So I, I learned to treat every second as precious and I learned that the harder thing to do is the right thing to do. And that also led me to thinking about time in general because every second counts. And I thought of like Usain Bolt, who runs the 100 meters in 9.58 seconds, or Albert Einstein, who was brilliantly thinking and that time was relative, or Marie Curie, who used a chronometer to measure radioactivity. So time mattered. And then I started thinking a few years later of myself and my future self. And what, what could, I, could I think about that? It was very fascinating research I came across from UCLA about your current self and your future self. And this is what I want to talk about in the context of vitality, is that if we are able to very carefully connect with our future self, even a few weeks or a few months in the, into the future, we have better physical, mental, social, and spiritual well-being. Unfortunately, with time, we start to lose our ability to think of our future self. But I think it's a skill. I think we, could, we can really develop this idea of thinking of, of our future self, and what I call respecting your future self or your future being, because it's important. 
And one of the best ways or one things I try to teach about when thinking with time in mind is to write your future and final headlines. So if you're listening to this or you're watching this online or even if you're here in person is to start to write your future and final headlines. What do you want to do with your one precious life tomorrow, next week, a year from now? Or what do you want people to say about your funeral? And so just take a few minutes as we look at this beautiful waterfall and think about that. Maybe just 10 seconds. Now, did you, were you able to project way, way, way into the future? Say 50 years or 100 years or even 10 years. And then if you look at this picture, if anybody knows what that is, you can put that in the chat or you can uh, raise your hand or whisper to your neighbor here and say, well, that's a, the first picture of a black hole. It actually has a name, M87. It comes from the Messier 87 galaxy. And 200 scientists in 20 countries spent 10 years to come up with that image. And when I saw this in the news last year, I started thinking of what we could do. What could we do if we got 200 scientists from 20 countries and spent 10 years collectively working together? Could we cure osteoarthritis? Could we eliminate degenerative spinal disorders? Could we eliminate sarcopenia and osteoporosis or any of the other things that plague or, or challenge us today? So that's what I thought about when that knee surgery and how to think with time in mind. The second, second story I want to tell you is about drinks in Mumbai, in Mumbai, India. And it's a very interesting story. I'm, I, I may not appear that way, but I'm half Asian Indian. My dad was from, the, from Patna, which is in northern India. And I had not traveled to India myself until this, this visit, which was about eight or ten, ten years ago. So I took a little bit of a tourist time uh, prior to going to having a meeting in, in Mumbai. I went to the Taj Mahal. I met with some of the locals. I really enjoyed uh, going through northern India, and then I went down to Mumbai for the Hirandani Orthopedic Med Medical Education meeting, and it was part of this biologic research which has brought me here to Cambridge today about platelet-rich plasma. But what was fascinating is if you look at this crew of characters that is standing in front of this meeting, there's one person who's smiling, that's Vikas, and maybe two, but it's a pretty serious group here, and this was a very esteemed group of people. I uh, was probably the least likely to be there. And we had a fascinating meeting. And at the end of that meeting, after two days at the meeting, we all went out uh, together for dinner. And then Vikas and I decided we would try to get some drinks or some beers for, for the crew. So if you look here at the, at the picture here, where nobody's really super smiling, and then here, what a little social connection would do. And I'm, I'm just very blessed to have met everybody in this, in this picture. I've stayed in touch with many people. We've collaborated on projects. We've collaborated on book chapters. We've become friends. And I learned something about that. I learned that closeness counts. And when, part of what, what Vickers and I talked about is, is meeting together in Cambridge at some point and having drinks at the Eagle Pub. And the Eagle Pub is famous for a variety of reasons, but the reason I remembered it from my reading, and I'm a big history of science a geek, is that Watson and Crick, when they finally put together their, their model and realized that DNA was a, <coughs> was a double helix, excuse me, um, they went to the Eagle Pub and had a beer together. I'm not sure if they had a beer, but I think they had a beer. And they just started screaming about how they had discovered the secret of life. And so I said to Vickis, I said, sometime, because I knew he worked at Cambridge, I said, I want to come to Cambridge and go have a drink at the Eagle Pub. But here's the lesson learned from the drinks in Mumbai. 
It's, it's to cultivate closeness. That connection we had many years ago has stayed in touch, has been a thread through our lives. The respect has grown. And, and that's really a huge component of your vitality. A Harvard study that's almost 80 years old now has proven that embracing community helps us live longer and happier. It's also important to know that loneliness kills and it's almost as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. So when you think about, oh my gosh, somebody's smoking or somebody is drinking too much, we really try to dissuade them from either smoking or drinking too much, but do we do the opposite when we, when we talk about closeness and friendship and do we, do we try to cultivate that? I think it's important to do that because maintaining social connections, especially as we get older, plays a vital role in protecting our health. And it's a similar isolation, you know, social isolation has the same or similar odds of high inflammation that's similar to physical inactivity. And I encourage you to look at some of these papers that are cited here, including the social relationships and physiologic determinants of longevity across the human lifespan for more. The final thing I want to talk about with regard to closeness is how do you get there? And I'm going to do something that I, again, try to teach my students and my friends and my family and myself, and that's to practice scary sharing. And so, so this story has to do with this shovel, the shovel next to this grave. And this was less than a year ago, a family member of mine unexpectedly passed away. And very sadly, in the last 18 months, I've been to three funerals. And what I realized when I came back for this particular funeral, and who takes a picture of a shovel, but this is a fresh grave, that shovel was screaming at me. On my flight back to where I'm from in Michigan, which is in the center of the United States, all I could think about was all the challenges in my life, all the things, the deadlines. On my way back, I was thinking about all my blessings. And what this shovel did, what this shovel did to me at that funeral, it was screaming at me. It says, you do not know when you are going to be next. Somebody can die early on, and one of the things I learned in medical school was that the, the warranty wears out when you're 45. So for, for those of you who are under 45, you may think you're going to live forever. For those of you who are over 45, you know you start to have friends or family members who get cancer, who get neurodegenerative diseases, or who have other things. So when I learned about this, when I saw this shovel, and what I try to explain to myself is to treat every second as precious. Treat every second and think about how you can cultivate closeness with others because that's a key component to your vitality in the long run. And the final one I want to talk about is this beach in Australia, and it's called the Four Mile Beach. And it's in northern Australia in a small town called Port Douglas. And Port Douglas is a cool little town right near the uh, Great Barrier Reef. And I went there with my family a few years ago, again, for an orthopedic meeting that happened to be in Hong Kong. We sort of went to, on a vacation prior to that meeting. And at the end of the vacation, we ended up here on this beach. And each morning, I would run up and down the beach. I'd run about two miles down the beach. I would take a little swim into the Coral Sea, which is what you see here on the left-hand side of this picture, if you're watching this. Beautiful, beautiful setting come back, run, and then stand underneath this about 80 foot tall palm tree and then stare out at this incredibly blue, beautiful uh, sea. And when I got there the last day, something happened. And that, what happened is that I learned that I wanted to understand what the, what the word vitality meant because I felt vital. vital. Now, of course, my cell phone didn't work. I'd been on vacation with my family. But over time, over many years now, six years I've been studying vitality, I've come up with a primary thesis, and that is vitality is a skill. 
It's not something I can give you. It's not something your government can give you, your mother, your brother, your sister. It's something you earn by taking ownership over your choices. And then I started to try and break it down into specific things like hope and service and time, closeness, purpose, fitness, sleep, and toughness. And I came up with this idea that there's this vitality wheel and we're, we're all connected with our physical, all of our components of our Vitality is connected with physical, mental, social, and spiritual, and it's a virtuous cycle of vitality. The best example is if you sleep better, you eat less. If you sleep better, you can exercise more, and if you exercise more, you can sleep better. And if you're closer connected to, some pe to somebody or have a better understanding of your meaning in life, you again have higher levels of vitality. This led me to kind of come up with a specific definition, and I call it a working definition of vitality, and that is vitality is purposeful, vigorous and connected living. I'll say that one more time. Vitality is purposeful, vigorous, and connected living. Here's the lesson I learned uh, as I've gone along and tried to learn more about vitality and what's stuck in my head after that walk or hike on the uh, run on the four mile beach is that purpose matters. And I got it reinforced again during the pandemic. And this is a picture of the Stanford dish, which is about a five mile hike around the hills above the Stanford campus. And the one thing that happened during uh, uh, COVID in the Bay Area is nobody was driving, nobody was you know, doing anything to the environment, and it was incredible what the, what the, what the sky looked like. And so one day, as I was walking up this, this hike, I saw this, these clouds uh, jumping over the top of the mountain, or top of the hill, and I, it reinforced that idea that your purpose is so important. You, and if we can pinpoint our purpose, it can be so valuable to our vitality. Now understand it's a lifelong prop process, but it's a foundational component of your personal and professional vitality. Now, I wanna make sure we don't purpose shame anybody, but here's the data. And again, what I've been trying to do with vitality is to scientifically break it down into specific actionable things we can do to enhance our vitality. And one of the things that's crucial here is that your purpose is, a, is, your, is your most important modifiable vitality asset. You get to decide what it is. If you do not decide what your purpose is in life, somebody else will do it for you. And if you do understand what it is, it's literally associated with lower mortality and less risk of chronic disease. Now, we as physicians don't learn this very much, but here's actually a, a Kaplan-Meier curve, paper published in 2019, over a five-year period. And if you see here in black, the people who had very little understanding of what their purpose had, had a much higher risk of dying compared to the people who really, really clearly could identify and articulate their purpose. So, so what I suggest is that, you know, purpose and identifying what you're supposed to do with your, your one precious life, and that could be personally or professionally, it can be separate or they can sometimes be together, is as challenging as the Hillary stuff on Mount, Mount Everest. And I don't know if you, you know the story of how Sir Edmund Hillary got to the top of Everest. There's actually been an earthquake now, so this Hillary step kind of crumbled a little bit. But when he first was there, the story goes, that he had to put himself horizontally with one hand on the icy rock and his crampons in the icy snow and kick himself up horizontally to get to the top. So when I think of how hard he had to get there, nobody else had done it, nobody else had thought about it, and it was 60 feet of sheer ice and rock at 29,000 feet of altitude, it must have been insanely hard. So it took me two or three years to boil down my personal and professional purpose statement into eight words, and that is to enhance global vitality 
one person at a time. I started by saying I want to enhance global vitality, which is quite a oh, large goal, but then I realized every single person that I can connect with or can potentially help matters. So my goal here today, if only one person listening to my voice, uh, if I can help them enhance their vitality, I will have met my goal. And when you think about your purpose, again, it can be very difficult, being almost impossible, overwhelming. But if you reduce progress to whatever is achievable, just take one step closer to what that will be, and you will be living a more vital life. So my suggestion today is to make time to think about your purpose. Spend actually 15 minutes today with a pen and a piece of paper. And think of it like a leveraged investment. Because if you know your purpose, if you understand what your purpose is, it becomes a superpower. You learn how to say no more often. You know how to say yes to certain things and absolutely no to others. And you live a more vital life. So again, what I'd like to remind everybody is these three stories. The knee surgery, with thinking with time in mind, drinking in, in Mumbai led to cultivating closeness, and the four-mile beach helped me realize that it's important to pinpoint your purpose. And this is part of what I call the Vitality Explorer Challenge. That is to use your unique skills and enthusiasm to transform yourself, your community, and the world. So this is what I've been trying to do for the last five or six years. I've tried to reduce it to specific actions. That's led me to teaching a course at Stanford called How to Enhance Your Vitality and read a course book called Vitality Essentials, which you can find on Amazon if you'd like. And finally, it's helped me start Vitality Explorers because I'm not a vitality expert. I know a fair amount about it now, but I will forever be a Vitality Explorer. And what I do is I share my homework for free on a text message newsletter, which is also online at Substack. So I encourage you to remember to think with time in mind, to cultivate closeness, and to pinpoint your purpose to enhance your vitality. Thank you again for, to everybody for the opportunity to speak, and I look forward to connecting with any and all of you. You can find me on LinkedIn or other places, and have a wonderful, wonderful meeting, rest of the meeting, and until I see you again, dare to be vital. Thank you very much.